invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. This morning we will be hearing God's Word from Hebrews 9 verses 27 and 28. But before we hear God's Word to us this morning, let us call upon His name in prayer once again. Our Heavenly Father, You tell us that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I pray that as we come before your word, you would make us like that blessed man. That we would delight in your word. and That we would be fruitful trees. Oh Lord, help us, we pray, by your word and by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Benjamin Franklin once wrote, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. The author of Hebrews would partially agree with Franklin, concluding that death is indeed a human certainty. However, for the author of Hebrews, the other half of certainty is not taxes, it is judgment. He writes, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So we know that death is inescapable. For sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, as we heard from Romans chapter 5 earlier. And God had warned Adam in the garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Adam ate, so we all surely die. But the warning of death was not exclusively of physical death, because physical death is merely the first and indeed lesser death. Far greater is the second death, which is the eternal judgment of hell. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21 verse 8. 
The second death is God's ultimate judgment against sin, which he will pronounce on the last day, on the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, we are told repeatedly, will be a day of wrathful judgment. The prophet Zephaniah declares, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. It has been appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Yet, this day of wrathful judgment is also described as a day of loving salvation. For Zephaniah also says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So Hebrews confirms that God has appointed death and he has appointed this day of judgment. And because God appointed these days, they will certainly come. You cannot escape them. All you and I can do is wait for them. And yet there are two very different postures with which people will wait. Some must wait with the, the fearful expectation of this wrathful judgment. While others must wait with the eager anticipation of God's loving salvation. And so I ask you this morning as you sit in your pew, how are you waiting? Are you waiting fearfully? Or eagerly. For the children of God's wrath, for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins in which they walk, the day of the Lord will be a terrible day. And so the only natural response is to wait fearfully. The author of Hebrews has already mentioned eternal judgment in chapter 6, verse 2. He will warn later in chapter 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So there you hear clearly of this first posture of waiting, which is waiting with the fearful expectation of judgment. Now why is this waiting fearful? It's fearful because as we've been learning in Hebrews, God is holy, He is just, He is good, and He will wisely, justly, and righteously condemn sinners who have broken His law. Law-breaking will never go unpunished. Judgment has been delayed, but it has not been dismissed. No case is ever thrown out in God's court. 
For God is the righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful judge of heaven and earth, and every soul that has ever been created will one day stand in his judgment. In particular, we learn that we will stand before the judgment of his Son, of Jesus Christ the Lord. For Jesus says in John chapter 5, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And again, Jesus says, He, that is the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you hear that? Everyone who has done evil will be raised unto judgment. The guilty will not go unpunished. And who has done evil? Everyone has done evil. Paul pronounces in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have broken God's law. But you may protest, I haven't murdered. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't committed adultery. Well, remember what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you have been angry in your heart, you have committed murder. If you've lusted after someone who is not your spouse, you have committed adultery. But if this does not convince you, I ask you, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever been less than fully honest? In other words, you may not have broken every command God has given, but you have broken at least one command. Everyone has broken God's law at one point or another. And if you admit this, then you are now a lawbreaker. You are guilty under the whole law. For, James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so, you must understand that judgment day is coming when God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Romans chapter 2. Jesus, as we have learned, is indeed full of compassion. But Jesus is also full of wrath. If your conception of Jesus does not include righteous wrath, then you have a false Jesus in your mind and in your heart. It's one of my problems with this He Gets Us campaign that's going around. Yes, there's the message of, oh, Jesus understands us. He's compassionate towards us. Yes, that is true. But that's not the only side of Jesus. Jesus is also full of righteous wrath. For speaking of the end, John describes many who hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Jesus is the Lamb of God. And on that great day of judgment, many will be praying that mountains will crush them so that they don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. That's also the Jesus of the Bible. Now why? Because ultimately, they'll be wanting to hide because they will be judged for whether or not they have honored this Lamb. Whether or not they have received this Lamb by faith. For remember what Jesus says, the Father gave authority to judge to the Son so that all might honor the Son as they honor the Father. And the only way to honor the Son is to actually believe the Son and to receive Him by faith. For God will send the Father, for the Father will send the Son again as the judge of the world. But He first sent the Son as the Savior of the world. And so judgment on the last day will be reserved for those who reject the Son as their Savior. For Paul is clear that those who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction are those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He again describes them as those who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So again, who must wait for the day of the Lord with the fearful expectation of judgment? It's not merely lawbreakers, for that would be all of us. It is lawbreakers who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, for there is an answer to our lawbreaking. So this brings us actually to very good news, which is there is a gospel of Jesus Christ which you can receive and be spared from His judgment and wrath. And for all who receive this gospel, they are not waiting for Christ's second coming fearfully. They are to be waiting eagerly. This is the surprising turn at the end of Hebrews 9. For the author speaks of death and judgment, but then he speaks of those who are eagerly waiting for this day, for Christ to return. And you may ask, if Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and we will all have to give an account for our lives, as Peter says we will in 1 Peter 4, how could anyone in his right mind be eagerly waiting for Christ to come? And yet that's exactly what the author says. There are those who long for Christ to return who cannot wait for that day, who pray for that day, who work to hasten that day. In fact, this ought to be the posture of every single Christian, of everyone who believes in the Son. Why? Well, that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my time. First, considering the heart of eager of eager waiting, meaning the reasons why Christians ought to be eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. And then second, considering the face of eager waiting, meaning what does this waiting look like in practice? So first, the heart of eager waiting. There are two reasons that the Christian waits eagerly for the Lord. 
Number one, the Christian waits eagerly for the day of the Lord because the Christian already knows the verdict. Imagine that you were charged with murder. And your trial, the verdict, and possible sentencing were all scheduled to take place on the same day. Now normally, you would be awaiting that day with great fear, especially if you knew you were guilty. You'd be wondering, what's the verdict going to be? What's the sentence going to be? Am I going to be sentenced to life in prison? Am I going to receive the death penalty? Not knowing the verdict on judgment day would cause you to wait with great fear. But what if you already knew what the verdict was going to be? And what if you knew it was going to be not guilty? And that you were going to be liberated and justified before all because the judge had come to you beforehand and he told you what he was going to pronounce on that day. Well, then you would not fear that day. You'd look forward to that day because you would be cleared and set free. Well, in one sense, this is the Christian's reality. Listen again to our text. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Remember, the author has been arguing that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. A covenant in which God promises to forgive sin, to remember it no more. And this is because as we have learned, Jesus is also the better high priest and sacrifice for sin. He offered his life once unto God as a sacrifice for sin, providing the perfect righteousness that God's law requires, as well as paying the penalty for sin which God's law requires. And Jesus, we are told in verse 24, has done this on our behalf to put away sin, as it says in verse 26. As we learned last week, by his blood, therefore, Jesus has borne our sin. It says this again in verse 28, referring to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. He has borne our sin, taking away our punishment and purifying our conscience. He's paid the penalty for sin. He's washed us clean of the defilement of sin. Not only this, He's supplied the perfect righteousness by which we may be justified before God and His law. Paul summarizes this reality in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you receive Him and His blood as your Savior, you are justified now before God and His law. So again, Paul argues in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And in light of this, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see? Those who have embraced Jesus and His blood by faith are justified now. They have peace with God now. The guilt, shame, stain, power, and penalty of sin have been removed now. So when Christ comes again, He's not doing anything more to add to your justification. It is complete. And so, Christian, you will never be more justified than you were the moment you received Christ by faith. The most sanctified Christian who has been walking with the Lord for decades is no more justified than the brand new Christian who put her faith in Christ five minutes ago. If you were here a couple of Sundays ago, you saw when I baptized a young woman, a student at Western Michigan University who came to faith in Christ just a few months ago. And as you saw the two of us stand up here. You saw me. I've been walking with the Lord for 37 years. She's been walking with the Lord for a few months. And as I baptized her, we stood up here equally justified. You did not see one person more justified by Christ than the other. Because justification is 1,000% based on Christ's righteousness and sacrifice for sin. And you don't add to that. His righteousness is perfect. His sacrifice is once for all. So when Christ comes back, He's not doing any more to deal with sin. He already dealt with it. He's now just coming to gather those and complete the salvation of those He already died for who are already justified by faith in Him. So the author says here that Jesus will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And the imagery again recalls the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. For on that day, the high priest would first appear before the people to offer sacrifices for sin. Then he would disappear as he went into the most holy place to sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant with blood. Then he would appear a second time, not to offer any more sacrifices, but to confirm to the people, God accepted the sacrifice, you are saved. That is what we learn that Jesus has done. He appeared on earth to offer himself as a sacrifice. The author of Hebrews has been telling us, then he ascended, he has gone into the heavenly sanctuary to present himself before God. And when we see him again, it will be to say, it worked. You are saved. Salvation will not be added to in any sense. It will simply be fully realized. Therefore, the Christian knows the verdict which leads him to eagerly wait for this day 
when he enters the eternal rest of God, when he receives the eternal promised inheritance in full. For as Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So that's the first reason we wait eagerly. The second reason the Christian eagerly waits for the day of the Lord is because the Christian is waiting for the one he loves. Do you notice that? In other words, the Christian eagerly waits for Christ's appearing because it is Christ appearing. The author of Hebrews says they are eagerly waiting not for the day, not for the inheritance. It says they are eagerly waiting for Him. Jesus is the one they want to see. Do you know why heaven will be a place of perfect joy? Because heaven is where Jesus is. Eternal rest is to have Jesus forever. The eternal promised inheritance is ultimately Jesus. His presence is the goal of your salvation. As sugar sweetens food, Jesus sweetens life. He is the pleasure in every moment of every day. And therefore, for the Christian, the height of happiness is the presence of Christ. Christ is the one the Christian loves above all else and longs to be with. Do you remember what Paul tells the Philippians? He says, my desire is to depart and be with the Lord, for that is far better. And Peter says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And yet we know that inexpressible joy will not be complete until we do see Him. Jesus has promised, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Of all the promises that you read of in the Bible, that's the best one. That's why all the other ones are so great. It's Jesus saying, where I am, you get to be there too. And so he prays to the Father, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, life right now is like a long-distance relationship. When Leandra and I first started dating, for the first nine months of our relationship, we were in different states for six of those months. And even when we were engaged, the hardest part was that every single night we had to say goodbye and then go to separate places. And so we looked forward to our wedding day. And more often than not, when we would talk about our wedding day, we would, we would say, on that day, we don't have to be in separate places anymore. On that night, we don't have to say goodbye. We get to stay in the same place. To be with the one you love is the most, is just the greatest joy imaginable. 
And so Paul encourages the Thessalonians, saying when, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then he tells the Thessalonians, encourage one another with these words. When we encourage and support one another, you know what we need to hear more often than anything else? As we suffer with depression and anxiety and any number of trials. The greatest way you can encourage a believer on this earth is to remind him again, the day is coming when you will always be with the Lord. It's not today, but oh, I pray it might be tomorrow, or the next day, or the day after that. When Christ appears again, it will be to save those eagerly waiting for him, which means he will finally come to bring them to be with him forever. Our relationship with him will no longer feel long distance. We will see him and wherever he goes, we get to go. So the Christian eagerly waits for judgment day because you know what judgment day is for us? It's wedding day. It's feast day. Oh, how the saints will sing as it says in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We eagerly wait for Christ's appearing because we love Christ's appearing. So Paul says to Timothy, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the heart of eager waiting, the reasons for our longing. But what's the face of eager longing? What does this look like? Again, I have two points, but these are much briefer. Number one, eager waiting looks like growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. One might argue that Christ's second coming informs and motivates every single New Testament letter, to some degree at least. But two letters in particular are all about Christ's second coming and how you live in light of it. Those letters are 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter. Those letters devote extensive time to explaining Christ's second coming, but then they give space to how God's people should live in light of Christ's second coming. So Peter and Paul essentially address the question, Christ is coming, how do I spend my days until that day? What do I do? Well, Peter's answer is, be holy and godly. After describing the day of the Lord saying, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He adds, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. 
He talks about the end of the world. He says it's coming, but Peter doesn't say, okay, go out, build bomb shelters, store guns and ammunition, make sure you have plenty of bottled water and canned goods. You're not preparing for the zombie apocalypse. Neither does he say the end of the world is coming, so get as much living in as you can. Find all the thrills and pleasures you can until that day comes. No, he says that day is coming. You live in holiness and godliness. Later, he puts it this way. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know this, so don't listen to all the garbage that's out there and lose your stability. Stand firm. But notice, he doesn't say standing firm is remaining static. He says to maintain your stability, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That verse has been so formational for the way I think about my life and the way I think about ministry here at Good Shepherd. If you were to ask me, what is ministry at Good Shepherd all about? I'd say it's all about growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Everything we do is about helping you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That you may embody that grace and live in holiness. Joyful holiness. Because holiness is happiness, people. You care about happiness, care about holiness. Grow in the grace that you have in Christ and grow in the knowledge of Jesus. If you think, I know all there is to know about Jesus, you don't know Jesus. Because the more you know Jesus, the more you realize this is an infinite well and I will keep drawing up this bucket for eternity and never exhaust the water of, well, of life in Christ. Grow, grow, grow. I pray that when I die, people say, what was it, what was it like when, when Pastor Neil preached? What was preaching about? Say, well, he just got up in the pulpit and he gloried in Christ that you might grow in Christ and thereby glorify Christ. If you don't want to hear about Jesus, go somewhere else because I don't have anything else to tell you. He's it. He is everything. And you will never exhaust his glory we spend so much time thinking about things that matter so little and we spend so little time thinking about things that matter so much and so my prayer is that we would obey Paul's command to the Colossians where he says if then you have been raised with Christ Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Eager waiting looks like growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Second and finally, eager waiting looks like faithful activity. And what does this faithful activity look like? 
Well, one, it looks like worship, meaning individual lives of worship and, and corporate worship. We'll get to this in a couple weeks, but in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the author says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as the day is getting closer and closer and closer, what do you do? Go to church. Worship the Lord. This faithful activity also looks like evangelism. Like being faithful to the Great Commission to make disciples from every tongue, tribe, and nation. As Peter speaks about the apparent slowness of the second coming in 2 Peter, he notes first that it's not slow from God's perspective. But he also notes that it is slow in one sense and it's on purpose. Because God desires all His people to be saved. Because when judgment day comes, it is too late. There is no more opportunity for salvation. So in delaying Christ's return, God gives more time for His people to be gathered and brought to saving faith. Peter puts it this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So wait for Christ's return by telling others about Christ. Tell them about Jesus, who He is, and what He's done, and that He's coming. His delay is for their salvation. To give them more time to wake up and see. But we need to be careful that we don't hear Paul's command to set our minds on things that are above or the words about worship and evangelism and think, well, the only faithful activity that counts is obviously spiritual and religious activity. As if all our other everyday activities don't have eternal significance. That's not true. It's very interesting to see what Paul's practical application is in 2 Thessalonians as he spends a lot of time talking about the second coming of Christ and then what's his exhortation to them? His exhortation in the light of Christ's coming is go to work, get a job, make a living, and be faithful. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. That is a faithful way to wait for Christ. In other words, when Christ returns, Christ should find Christian electricians doing electrical work. He should find Christian physicians helping people get better. He should find Christian parents Feeding their kids, clothing their kids, disciplining their kids, washing their kids. For remember Jesus' parable about the talents. What the master required of his servants was simply to be faithful with what he had given them. And earlier as Jesus speaks about the second coming, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. The master wants to find his servants so doing, at work, doing what he has called them to do. 
So the Christian eagerly waiting is not the one who is practically useless on earth. Living like a man just standing on a mountaintop staring at the sky. When's he going to come? Jesus is not going to be happy if you're staring at the sky when he comes back. He wants you to be faithfully active, living in the word, in prayer, in evangelism, in corporate worship. Yes, all of those things, but also doing your job, doing whatever God has called you to do, getting married, raising kids, impacting society for good. Do it all. I believe God's command to us as we live as spiritual exiles on this earth is similar to what he commanded the Israelites as they were to live as exiles in Babylon, waiting for the day of their salvation. For Jeremiah writes to these exiles and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Christian, be busy with the good work that God has given you to do as you eagerly wait for Him. And as you eagerly wait, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and remaining faithful in activity, pray for the day of the Lord to come. For the heart that longs for Christ will longingly pray for Him to come again. Because that's the response to Christ's declaration. The book of Revelation ends with Jesus saying, Surely I am coming soon. And so the people cry, Amen, come Lord Jesus. That ought to be where you always land as you read God's word. As you learn about who Jesus is and what he's done. At the end of every time in the word, at the end of every day, if you're understanding it, it should lead you to fall on your knees and say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I, I confess that I, I do not think about Christ's second coming enough and live in light of it. So I pray that you would help me and each of us to be more mindful of the one who matters most. And as we do, I pray that you would give us the grace to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and to be faithful in everyday life doing all of the little and big things that you have called us to do. To be faithful at our jobs, faithful with our families, faithful as citizens of this country. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.